Hello, and welcome to Accent of Woman. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. Please be aware, the segment you are about to listen to contains descriptions of genocide, trauma, and mental health. If you are in need of support, please call Lifeline Australia on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. In 1994, close to a million Tutsis and moderate Hutus lost their lives in the Rwandan genocide. To commemorate the 25th anniversary, I am joined by members of the Rwandan community in Melbourne to hear their stories of hope and resilience. And later in the show, we'll hear a short snippet of an ADOC Week event called Fighting for Black Issues in a White Democracy. But first up, the Rwandan community in Melbourne. Well, my name is Frida Omohoza and um, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, and um, um, just moved here last year um, from uh, Ohio, um, but I'm originally from Rwanda. So I uh, lived in the States for the past six years and then I moved to Melbourne last year in, in March. Uh, I'm Stephanie Kabanyana Kanyandakwe. Um, my mum is Rwandese, my dad is English, and we've mostly lived in Australia, um, but we've had many trips going back home to Rwanda. And um, the most recent one was in March for, for a month, but around the time of, of the war, just afterwards, my mum and and I travelled to that situation to see as many family members and help out as we can. I'm originally from Rwanda. I am a mother of two, and I moved to Australia in 2000, end of 2012. Originally, I wanted to interview you, both of you, two weeks ago, but Stephanie told me that it was the morning period. Can you tell us what the morning period is? Uh, the morning period is uh, 100 days for us um, as Rwandans and as, you know, Tutsi survivors. And uh, that was because of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. And so every April, from April to um, end of June, we do have a morning period, and that's 100 days. And the reason to why it's 100 days, it's because the genocide went on for 100 days. It was something that was, of course, um, propagated and prepared for a very long time, but a million people was killed, a million Tutsis and Hutus who opposed to anything that the government and the Hutus were doing were then killed during that period of time. So um, every year we do have a time to commemorate our loved ones, um, survivors and other Rwandans who also um, come to support and of course with friends of like we live here in Melbourne we invite a lot of other people that are not just Rwandans friends and everyone who wants to support us are all welcome to come and commemorate our loved ones it's also a time for us to teach our children and to teach the world um, to tell our stories what happened and um, you know what happened and how we survived and um we don't want to see that happen again and teaching our children the real truth. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when they're young, you you can tell all the details or whatever, but um, telling the truth because, um, like we said, um, this is a time where 
um, that genocide is denied or mm. confused to something else um, where people say, oh, no, it was a double genocide or this and that. So as a survivor, when I tell my story or when other survivors tell their story is to actually, you know, tell what we experienced, what it was, and to commemorate our people that didn't have um, a chance to live after that. And so for the whole country and for all the Rwandans that live away, that's what we do. We come together and support each other and commemorate and tell our history. It's a period that's observed collectively, but what does it mean for each of you personally? Personally is a time for me to just remember all our beloved ones, especially those ones who were perished, the families that were perished, and no one can survive and tell, share their stories. And we haven't even paid tribute or even pay respect by finding their bodies. I'm always saying, I feel like I need, I have a duty of care to mm. just live for them. Because their life was cut short. When a baby of two months is just being killed or when a mother is just who was pregnant and expecting to deliver after nine months was killed and that baby didn't survive, that child by now should be 25 years and should have a dream of life and having, you know, full of projects, dreaming, you know, a special person by now. But that life was cut short. And I just, I'm always saying, when I do the commemoration, my philosophy normally is that in, in Kenya Rwanda we say, Nemuzazima Turiho. I just feel like when I'm just doing something or when I'm planning the, the commemoration in Melbourne, wherever I am, I feel like that I have a duty of care of commemorating them mm. because it's a time of remembering them, honoring them, wherever they are, because we don't know where they are. There are some who have been eaten by dogs or whatever, or even in the rivers. But then it's my time to pay respect to them. It's interesting as well because I guess the whole purpose of the genocide was to exterminate and you living your life to the fullest is like the best way to commemorate. For me, when I say something... I just feel like it's it's giving me strength to continue. And I feel like even if today I should go, at least I know there is someone or I have even showed, showed my kids what's going to happen. They need to keep up that mm -hmm. so that at least everyone needs to have that duty of educating and telling and sharing what has happened in Rwanda, mm. that it doesn't have it happen anywhere else. Yeah. But also, it's it's a way of healing because whenever I'm just doing something, wherever I am, I feel I'm feeling like I'm hearing those, you know, their voices, mm. and I'm like, especially the kids, I just feel like if they come back today or if we meet today, there was they will say. You stayed. What did you do? Mm. Did you tell anyone what happened to me? Did you tell anyone what happened in our country? Did you educate anyone? And then the kids who are being born today, are they sure what has happened in their origin country? Yeah, I guess that ties nicely to my next question, which is why is it important to tell the next generation what happened? Because some of them might not know or might not know to what extent. It's important because... It's not a story that should forget, and even if it's 
110 years or whatever, I don't know, whatever is happening, I just feel like everyone needs to know what has happened, especially that the genocide in Rwanda, we always say the genocide in 1994, but actually it hasn't started in 1994. It's something that started back in 1559, but then it has just been happening, 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 and everyone was watching. It's like, ah, they would just simplify it. Oh, it's just a simple killings. You know, they are just, you know, fights against this, this, this. But actually, that's what's twisting the, you know, the story. Mm. Because the target has been since 59 to exterminate all the Tutsi. Mm. But then when it happened in genocide in 1994, it was actually putting together the planning behind, the organization behind right. everything, which has been, it should have been prevented. Mm. But because from 59, people have been watching us as if it's normal. Mm. Neighborhood, you know, all over the world, it was just normal. It's just something happening, you know, right. simple it's not going to be bad, you know. But then, it has been prepared. In Nerahamwe, all the militias have been trained, yeah. properly trained. Young people have been trained. Daylight. People could see it. Mm. Their reports. Mm. But then, what's going to happen if we just keep quiet today? Right. This is the time to stand up. Thank you so much. And I think, Frida, you were about to add something. Yeah, I was going to say um, very little was reported during the genocide or even a little bit before the genocide and after the genocide. 25 years old now, not much is actually also talked about, not enough. Yeah, there's, you know, there's teachings and there's, as survivors, we tell our stories and, and so on, but it's never enough. And if you look at our country, um, the group that actually killed more people or the big number of people are the young people. The, the, generation, the young generation is the generation that actually is the, the group of people that participated so much in the genocide. I was only 14 during the time of the genocide. I lost my entire family. But I can tell you that some of my friends whom I was in school with killed a lot of people. And, of course, a few years later, after being in jail, were let outside. You know, they were allowed to go outside because they were minors at, during the time that they killed mm. our families. And so just because not much was said uh, about our history, about what happened to my people, about what happened to my family, I feel like it's my duty to teach not just to my children but also to the younger generation to tell um, exactly what happened to me, to my family, because when my children ask me why they don't have grandparents, why they don't have uncles, why they don't have um, aunties, I have to tell them the truth to what happened to my family, but also have to teach them the history of their own country and who they are. Um, when I was growing up, I was called a snake, a cockroach, less than a human being. That's what a Tutsi was. I do not want my children to be referred to anything other than a valuable human being. Mm. Um, and so I teach my children um, and teach them who they are and what their values are. They're not to be called anything else that they're not. And so growing up in that environment and then see that happen and then lose a big number of people and have 
to live with the loss of all, of all that, I feel like it's my duty as a survivor to teach not just my, my children, but the world to know the truth and to know exactly what has happened to the Tuts people in Rwanda. And I feel like it's an understatement when I say you've gone through a lot and you show a lot of resilience. Um, where, where do you get that resilience? Uh, how do I overcome adversity? It's through my faith in God and uh, through um, leaning and trusting in who, the one who created me and has saved my life. Uh, but also, I also feel like I have the duty to live on for my family, not just the family that I lost, but for the family that I have today and for my country and to shine for them. And the fact that I was given another chance to live after I lost everyone else, I feel like this is this is another this is like it's like a second life for me. So um, that's why I get the courage to, and I have to make it to make an intentional decision each day because it's a struggle to live with all the you know with all the pain of losing your family and, and so on. But you have to make an intentional decision every day. I'm not saying that all my days are bright; some of them are dark. Mm. But I have to make a decision: Do I get out of my bed and leave the life that I was given, or do I just be? You know, be lost like you know, like I was supposed to have died like everybody else. So I make that choice every day. That was Frida Umohoza discussing how she overcame adversity to make a better life for herself and her family. If you want to know more about Frida's story, check out her book, Frida Chosen to Die, Destined to Live at All Good Bookstores. NADOC Week is an annual celebration that is observed on the first Sunday of July until the following Sunday. It commemorates the achievements, culture and the resilience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait communities. And I had the pleasure of attending one such event, Fighting for Black Issues in a White Democracy. The panel featured an all-Aboriginal lineup of campaigners and activists. I will let the panelists introduce themselves and answer the fundamental question, how do you campaign for meaningful change? The facilitator of the panel was Edie Shepherd, a Baladung and Wurudjuri woman and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Uh, yeah, well, Kirijinali, hi. Um, yoda Yoda and Ragaya. Um, what else do you want to know? <laughs> Makes the best NADOC memes in the game. I try. Uh, Lara Watson, Barry Gubber, woman from Central West Queensland and the Indigenous Officer at the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And I oversee um, First Nation Workers Alliance that is running a campaign and giving a voice to remote community development program workers. Hi, my name is Sharina Clanton. I'm a proud Wangatha Yamiji and Noongar Kitcha woman from Wajak Noongar Buja. Um, I'm also a Baladong Noongar Yorga, so Wajak Noongar Buja is Perth. <laughs> um, I'm actually related to all the garlets, so um, when I was saying, hey, you're mob, and we found out, and it was like, I am a Yaren, I am a garlet, hey! <laughs> um, Forever finding new cousins, it's wild. <laughs> Um, and yeah, just honoured to be here. So thank you all for coming and sitting in and listening and leaning into the discomfort and the unknowing and and 
uh, allowing yourself to have courageous conversations and to see... Uh, I, I kind of get a bit exhausted by the panel format where it doesn't implement in terms of a ripple effect um, within a brighter, uh, wider discourse, not only in ourselves, in our community, but within the government structures that we're operating in. And so I'm hoping that that shifts a little bit in its axis tonight. So thank you. How can we have these conversations about how to better our movement, how to expand our horizons, expand the way that we view things, expand how we campaign and all of that sort of stuff uh, in meaningful ways without placing that additional burden on those who are already carrying so much of that load? I think, firstly, there's nothing to fix. You know, the way that we campaign may be um, different to the way you campaign, but at the end of the day, every style is needed. So whether you're within the system and you're lobbying government for change or you're actually on the streets rallying and closing down, you know, cities and traffic, every campaign is needed for change. So... I think we need to have the conversation. If we're being asked to fix something, we need to be having the conversation around culture, country, protocol, um, and talking in regards to culturally safe spaces, particularly if they want to be involved in our campaigns um, and the way that we campaign. Yeah, like, I get asked, like, the same, like, three questions constantly, like, every day. I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, and the thing is, we've already said it. We've already written it out. We've written our articles and all of that stuff. So, the really, the matter is, stop expecting us to do the work for you. Because I can bet I could go and look on another Indigenous activist work and find the exact question that you asked, and they've already written a giant thesis on it. So really, it is just <laughs> shut up and actually listen, actually look through the things that we've already written and don't expect us to put all of the homework onto a platter and then hand it to you because that shit is fucking tiring. It is... Don't need to reinvent so the wheel. Yeah, it's just do the work is as simply as I can put it. It's interesting because just before, I hope you don't mind me saying Celeste, sister girl Celeste Little um, in the audience, um, another phenomenal activist and writer, is we often talk about emotional labour and how I actually experienced a burnout, to be honest. I went through my own period where I got really tired not tired of fighting, but tired of the same rhetoric and the systems and, the, and nothing had shifted. And what I felt I had done in the last 10 years made little effort. Um, people go, yes, but one small drop, it makes a wave. I was just like, just shut up. Because um, <laughs> it, it, let me tell you, every day when you're dealing with systemic racism, every day when you are profiled because of your blackness, and I'm not talking, that's another conversation, is, a, is when you identify as black in this country, you will experience racism, let alone the colorism. 
So let alone the colorism that exists because I have, do have lighter skin than my sisters and they are profiled even more so than me. One is actually about to graduate as a doctor and still, and still and told actually in year 11 and 12 that she's not smart enough to sit her TE. She now will have two degrees. Wow. So when I see my... I, the thing is you have to go back to um, our grandmothers and our grandfathers who were staunch activists throughout the 50s and 60s. My grandmother was one of the first Aboriginal women to set up um, Munyalady program. And the Munyalady program, as the first nurse in Western Australia, she grew up on the reservation where you had to get a permission slip from the native welfare officer in order to leave the reservation to go into town to get yourself an education. And my great-grandmother, Mary Malcolm, was good friends with Neen Gare, who was the native welfare officer's wife, who stole the story, The Fringe Dwellers. Trilby, the central character, is my grandmother's middle name. So, yeah, let's not talk about another conversation about stealing our stories. Um, So, when my grandmother became the first Aboriginal nurse in Western Australia, she was adamant that education was a golden key that unlocked many doors. I'll say it again. Education is a golden key that unlocks many doors. Grandpa was exactly the same. Without the education of her nursing degree, my mum then and my uh, grandfather being the first law court officer in Western Australia as a Noongar man, my, that potentially would not have set up for my mother to become the first Indigenous female state prosecutor in Western Australia to then go on and get her honours and then masters and then qualify for her PhD. That then created a ripple effect in my household where I, as a single mother, mind you, 31, homeless, yes, we lived out of black garbage bags, no, I do not have economic privilege, yes, I understand there are different tiers of privilege in terms of education and I understand that there is a particular privilege that I have because I've had access to education. Not everybody has. But we fought for it. And we were also adamant that without it, we wouldn't have been making the kind of changes that we wanted to see now. Now, my mother fought on the streets. She was was the template and blueprint for my own activism. And then I said, Mum, why don't I see you at marches anymore? She goes, Sharina, how do you eat an elephant? I was like, you can't eat an elephant. Like, she's, she's from a metaphor. Like, um, and she goes, one bit at a time. And that's true. And I said, Mum, don't you find it exhausting? She goes, but if I don't keep up the fight, I'm, I'm, putting on, I'm placing the stepping stones down for you to eventually continue that legacy. And it's your job and it's incumbent upon you that when you get to a position of power or privilege or opportunity, that you extend your hand so that you help other fellows reach the same level as you. I then realised that you've got to have self-care because then in my own journey, and my own journey is different, my own journey does not speak for every Aboriginal woman or every Aboriginal person. It's my own unique experience. But what I can relate to is that we are often burned out. We are exhausted. We're doing multiple jobs within our community, within our homes, within our roles, um, in various government organisations, in non-for-profit, whether they're recognisable positions or not. 
is to decolonize not only ourselves but the system itself. And then on top of it, we're educating you, which we shouldn't have to, but we are because we're wanting you to learn. So we're talking constantly, we're telling you about deep listening. We're not just talking about listening and you're engaged. We're talking about a deeper listening in terms of a cultural understanding and the nuances required about Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous being, Indigenous ways of life. And so uh, that burnout phase uh, was a real learning journey about how, how, one, I couldn't do it all, two, that I needed to have a support system for my own mental health and emotional well-being. And two, I had to, three, I had to, beyond anything, I had to look after my spirit. And that often the people, usually non-Indigenous organisations or non-Indigenous media, often go to that one Aboriginal person as a voice for everything and that they're the expert. And no one is actually an expert. Even our elders are constantly learning. So... Often we try to educate ourselves very, 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 very quickly within your systems and we talk about the things that need to be changed and then we talk about the various solutions that you can potentially implement and they go, oh, no, thank you very much for your recommendations and don't implement them. That's a cycle that happens again and again and again. And what I grew tired of was these panels and these uh, forums that had invited Aboriginal peoples to the stage or invited us in terms of having the microphone but did little to implement target-based initiatives and hold their own selves to account. So I think, like, burnout is a really big thing. Mental health is a huge high rates of depression and suicide within our communities that no-one's addressing. Um, there's a huge amount of uh, pressures, not only if you're in terms of an urban landscape, but also with our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are living semi-traditionally and trying to maintain old ancient ways too. And then there's a consciousness where we have to have a double consciousness of being Indigenous and then understanding a colonial framework and colonial thinking. So that's exhausting. Then beyond that... We're often unpacking your racism and your fragility and your rage to then sit with you in a polite conversation with nice tone to help semi-educate you to a point where you might want to engage in some difficult content. Then from that point, we're starting with truth. And from that point, we then are challenging everything that you've been brought up with in terms of Indigenous histories, black massacres, genocide. You have to understand that genocide was happening up until the late 50s. It's still happening now, just in a different way. If you enjoyed today's program or any of our previous shows, please help us stay on air by donating to Accent of Woman on 9419 8377. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. You can follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Sherwat.